Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey friends, this is Andre here from the Tennis and Bagels podcast. And as you can see, I am back here. And uh, I want to say a special thanks to Owen, who is here with me, because he did he took over with the, the podcast with Vansh on this Sunday, and it was pretty good. Um, I see that most of you guys liked it from the number of listens that we normally get. So yeah. And uh, yeah, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here with you doing this podcast. And I have to say, I feel... A little bit fortunate to have had so much time recently because um, I've been able to do all the podcasts recently just by virtue of having more free time than you guys. So I feel um, a little bit bad that we haven't been able to do as many with all three of us, but happy to be here as always. Cool. And uh, as you notice, today is in the middle of the week and no tournaments are over and we don't normally do podcasts about like um, any other tournaments except for the Grand Slams in the middle of the tournament. So what we're here today to talk about is not necessarily Rome 2021, but it, we're still talking about Rome. And um, it's a match that is very well known. And lots of people have talked about it like over and over. And here we are adding yet another drop in the ocean of uh, anal- analysis on, on the um <laughs> Roger Federer and Nadal Rome 2006 final, which was really good. And people never really get tired of watching that match and talking about it. I feel like it. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think a couple of people even rank it as the best match they've ever seen or one of them. And I think in terms of at least clay matches, it's certainly in the conversation. Cool. And um, so um, since it was pretty much impromptu and in, in a way, um, Owen has actually more information about how this is going to work than I do. So um, why don't you leave the structure of this one? Okay, that's a lot of pressure. I feel like uh, Federer on one of the match points he had. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, I think we can start with some historical context. Do you mind if I sort of set the stage for how things were before this match? Go ahead. Okay, yeah. So at this point in time, Federer was sort of right in the thick of his prime. He was on top of the world in 2005. He had had an absolutely ridiculous year. I think he was 81-4 and four on the year. One of those losses was to Safin at the Australian Open, and he had match point there. Another one was to Nalbandian, I think, at the year-end finals. And he served for that match at a 6-5, 30-love in the fifth. So even when he was losing, which was not often at all, he was getting really, really close. And, um, and he won two majors in 2005. He started 2006 by winning the Australian Open. And on hard and grass, he was just leaps and bounds better than everyone else at this point. And by comparison, Nadal, his prime, I would say, was like just starting. In 2005, he had had an incredible play season, but this was before he extended 
um, the full extent of his talents to the other surfaces. So he'd really challenged Federer in 2005. They had a tight match in Miami that Federer came back from two sets down to win. And then Nadal beat him in the semis of the French Open. And so you could sense that this was sort of a bubbling rivalry. And in 2006, Nadal beat Federer in Dubai, which was interesting because that was a quick court. And then he beat him in Monte Carlo. And I think that was a pretty tight four-set match. So in the grand scheme of things, Federer was a better player than Nadal. But Nadal was getting the better of Federer in the rivalry, and especially on clay courts. So I think the anticipation for this match was quite high because their Monte Carlo match had been close. They were number one and two in the world. And I think a lot of people saw this as sort of a preface to a potential French Open final um, a few weeks later. Cool. And uh, well, we all know the, the, the details of the match, like the, the grand scheme of things when that um, Federer um, took it out to five sets on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had two match points uh, at... 1540 on the serve uh, in the in the fifth set he he was he was in the brink of coming back from from a uh, two sets to one deficit um and he essentially dismantled Nadal in the fourth set so he was sort of a favorite and he had break he was a breakup also like let's not forget yeah. in the fifth set so um so yeah like I mean what are some things that actually, I, I guess, like what sticks out to you, to you in this match, I guess, like in, in, in their rivalry or in the, just like the, the actual just match, like enclosed um, world of just their own 2006 final? Yeah, I mean, I think the match was really fascinating from a statistical standpoint. I mean, it was over five hours long, so there's a ton to look at. Um, I won't make you go through it like set by set or <laughs> anything. But a couple of things that I found interesting was um, in the first set, which went on serve, Federer had two set points on Nadal's serve at 6-5. And uh, both of them weren't taken because Federer hit on force errors and it went to a tiebreak. And there are a bunch of times when, if that happens, someone missing set points before a tiebreak, the momentum is really with the other player. And they'll go on to sort of complete the steal of that set. But that is not what happened here. Uh, Federer won that tiebreak 7-0. Which um which is pretty remarkable. Hmm. White washes like that are super rare and even more rare between two top players. And let's not forget that this was Nadal's favorite surface. So I thought um that was a really emphatic way for him to take the first set. And then the second set in some ways sort of followed a similar pattern and then diverted right at the end because um at four or five on Federer's serve, uh, Nadal had a set point. And Federer saved it with like a really great sprawling backhand volley. He lunged and just punched it out of Nadal's reach. And this went to a tiebreak too. And Federer was up 4-2 in the tiebreak, but then his mm-hmm. game sort of got seized up by errors and Nadal ended up winning the tiebreak 7-5, really without having to do too much. I think um, on set point, he approached the net behind almost like a scooped forehand. It was kind of a slice or a chip. And it was sort of low, but Federer had like all the time in the world to like line up a passing shot and it went right into the net. And it was, and that was just a really bad error in that event of the match. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, um, like, what were the main things you remembered from the first two sets? Um, well, I guess the, the first set, like, I think what's impressive, I guess, uh, it's mostly just the fact that, as you said, like, uh, Federer came back and emphatically won the the tiebreaker. Because one of the things that ends up uh, that ends up happening with Federer at times is that he will have a like a big opportunity and then his main rivals, I guess, like Nadal and Djokovic who are able to 
come back from the brink and take him a, a, another step. Normally, they will have all the momentum in Federer. It would just seems a little, seem a little bit out of sorts. Um, which he, and he ended up kind of looking that way a bit uh, by the end of the actual match. But um, in the, the, the first high tiebreaker, he just kind of... It's almost like he clicked that he was Roger Federer. And he was like, hey, that's... Wait a minute. I, I can do things on court and I can be, play really well. And he, and he did. Um, but um, I guess my, my main um, takeaways from the entire match, I guess, um, is it's just like how, how well Federer is moving. Um, and he, you know, we tend to like think of like uh, Rafa Nadal as like the ultimate clay player, which he is, but it's not like Roger Federer was like a pushover on clay. He's he's incredible. Um, and some say that he maybe if he had like a two-handed backhand, he would have snatched maybe one or two, one or two of those uh, clay court finals that he played against Nadal in the French Open or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it definitely, one of the, a few things that stand out to me, especially in the two sets because they traded them was um just how um Federer just uh and it's, it's just really the errors right I, I feel like sometimes Federer can can just start making errors and especially on his forehand side it's almost like he feels pressure to you know win that point and then he all of a sudden makes the error and, and it's a it's a it's a story that repeats itself like throughout this match I would imagine at least like I'm not too too sure about like the the entire rivalry um maybe a little bit like he misses a couple of forehands here and there against um many players but um uh, I guess in, in I guess in this match I would definitely say that the fact that he made so many errors in that tiebreaker it was just weird it was almost like he imploded Federer it it it, it never really felt like he had a that he he believed he he could win that uh, and take a two set lead or maybe something on in his mind just clicked he was like oh my gosh I'm about to have like a two set little to love leading against Nadal and Clay I don't know and even the, and even then like Nadal had like just one French Open it's not like he was like the king of Clay you know he right. was definitely rising but he wasn't like legend status yet yeah and I think those are some really great observations I think what you said about Federer almost taking a two-set lead and getting a little tight makes a lot of sense because I think up to this point on best of five clay, they had only played at the French Open in 2005 and then Monte Carlo in 2006. Maybe I'm missing one, but Nadal won both of those matches and Federer was never really in a winning position in either of them. They were tight in the middle, but Federer like wasn't close to taking a two-set lead. And so maybe it's possible because he hadn't beaten Nadal on clay at this point. It's exactly what you said. And he thought, oh my gosh, I'm three points away from a two-set lead because he had 4-2 and he had five all as well and missed a forehand. Um, And he just tightened up for a little bit and that was all it took to even the match. And I like what you said as well about how well he was moving because I think since the Federer-Nadal rivalry has gone on for so long and sort of Federer started to decline physically a bit before Nadal did, it feels like for a lot of years, the conversation has sort of been like, oh, Federer has to win the first set, or like he has to shorten rallies. And interestingly, interestingly, in this match, he did. He went to net 100 times, I think. But I think it's interesting because he, at this point, he didn't really have to. He could hang from Nadal from the, um, hang with Nadal from the baseline. He wasn't at that physical disadvantage yet. Hmm. And, uh, and he could rally without constantly trying to end points. And so I think it was sort of really fun to see Federer meet Nadal on level terms physically and sort of play this five-hour match right to the end without fading. Because um, since 
2009, we really haven't seen that between these two. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the thing is uh, that is obviously like this conversation is definitely going to go there is, is the Federer um, backhand. And actually that's probably like, in my opinion, from what, from, what I was, from what I was seeing as I was kind of preparing for today is that it, it seems like some of the um, Federer errors that he produces on his forehand are caused by the fact that he, he doesn't have as potent a, a backhand and he tends to break down earlier than Nadal's backhand. So it definitely feels like whenever he gets a chance, he needs to go for it. And he, I don't know, maybe he gets tied up by the fact that he has a forehand to play at that mo at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a brilliant point as well. I think there are a couple of reasons for this one is that Nadal was constantly trying to go after his backhand. And so when he did get a look at a forehand, it was almost like, I imagine the feeling would have been, Oh my gosh, like I got a forehand. I can't waste this. I need to sort of go for a winner or try to um, open up the court or be aggressive. And I think another reason is in 2006, Federer's forehand was, I think, the best it's ever been. Um, since his prime, it's a part of his game that's gone downhill a little bit, I think. But in 2006, uh, the Federer forehand was really as good as it's ever been. He could hit winners from it from all over the court. He could get angles. Um, he could go for pure power. He could move his opponents around with it. So I think it was also just absolute confidence in his forehand that he could live and die by by that shot. And in this match, he did. And in the end, he died by it. But I think just the fact that how um, it was so good at this point allowed him to go into matches with that mindset and most of the time come out successful. Hmm. Yeah. So um, if you go over into the other sets, uh, what do you, what stands out most to you? Yeah, so the third set um, and the extended, quote unquote, extended highlights we watched because I don't think the full match is on YouTube. Uh, there's only really, I think they may have only showed two points from the third set, but one of them is um, Federer serves at two all 30-40, and he comes to net, which was actually a pretty successful strategy for him in this match. According to Tennis Abstracts, like I said, he came in 100 times. I think he won 75% of the points, which is, um, which is really, really good when you're playing Nadal on clay. Mm -hmm. I think um, you would not expect the percentage to be that good, but he came in beside behind an inside-in forehand that didn't have a lot of width. And Nadal just passed him cleanly with a cross-court backhand, and that was the only break in that set. Nadal sort of rode it to the end, uh, holding serve pretty easily. So that was 6-4. Um, and then in the fourth set, I thought this was really impressive, how well Federer turned it around. And I think it was also sort of emblematic of how, how high his peak was at this stage and that he was the best player in the world and that he could have these purple patches that would sort of render all his opponents helpless, even Nadal on clay. And while I don't think Nadal played great tennis in the set, uh, Federer was outstanding. He, um, he hit some amazing forehand winners. He broke Nadal's serve twice. Uh, he was moving extremely well, uh, like you alluded to earlier. I think he had things pretty easy on his own serve. Um, I'm not sure he faced a break point in the set. So, so after um, the third set, it looks like Nadal had a lot of momentum, but mm. Federer really rose to the challenge in this fourth set, which was something that he hadn't been able to do at the 2005 Roland Garros or Monte Carlo a few weeks before this match. And so I think this really put the outcome of the match in doubt because these two had only played one five-setter at this point, which Federer had won 6-1 in the fifth in Miami in 2005. So I think... Um, so I think the fourth set really set up the fifth nicely for uh, a ton of drama. What did you think? Um, yeah, I think so too. Like, I, I feel like one of the things is that 
Federer's backhand was actually holding up pretty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe Nadal was relying a little much on um, on Federer making errors off of that side or just like trying to wait for too many slices and didn't actually take much of an opportunity to actually go for the forehand inside out. Like he hits so perfectly, like uh, like he just kind of like runs around it and just hits it like inside out, especially on the slice, which is probably like what he was waiting a few times over and mm-hmm. just didn't happen. And Federer ended up like taking the opportunity instead. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why um, maybe Nadal, probably also like the fact that Nadal was a, a little fresh um, as a tennis player and didn't actually have that much of a, um, you know, it didn't really click in his mind uh, the strategic ways that like, wait a minute, this is happening and probably like right. this probably cost him this set. Uh, so um, not that Federer maybe still would have won like um, in, in in other terms because he wasn't his best best sets, I guess. Like he made a few errors, I believe. Um, but it also comes off to the fact that like maybe he was being very much more um, conservative because his backhands were dropping super short and a lot of the times like his backhands will, would still drop short regardless but um it, it it was this time he was just kind of like redirecting it to back to Nadal's um he was he, he wasn't dropping short on the backhand because he was playing him badly he was dropping short just because he was actually playing very conservatively so that he wouldn't miss and he would actually direct them to Nadal's backhand so that he would have like a more neutral rally at that point even though it's weird to say this because Nadal's backhand is so much better that yeah. you, even on that backhand to backhand side, you wouldn't necessarily be that um, that neutral. But, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, did I cut you off? No, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I was going to say something that's interesting about this match is just to see how much worse both players' backhands were uh, than they are now. <laughs> because I think um, I think you're completely right in that Federer's backhands did hold up very well over the course of the match against the Nadal forehand onslaught, which is how Nadal typically plays against Federer, just bombards the backhand. Mm. And usually he can get errors after um, at some point in the rally. But I think here Federer did a really good job of just not making errors and staying in the points. Sometimes with uh, backhands down the line that would get to Nadal's backhand and sort of reset the point, maybe give Federer a look at a forehand. But yeah, I think um, I think both dropped a fair number of backhands short. And it's interesting now because each of them look to attack so much more with it. And I think back then, um, both of their backhands really didn't they weren't like designed to finish points they were designed to set up their forehands to finish points Mm -hmm. and um so yeah i think and like each of them tried to sort of attack the other's backhand wing because federer could um he couldn't execute this pattern as reliably as nadal because two-handers by nature tends to be more steady than one-handers and less likely to leak errors but he likes to pin nadal in his backhand corner and then go for forehands down the line into the open court as well and I think he executed that pretty well in this um, in this set. I think that's how he got the first break, actually. Um, yeah, I think he um, I think he like opened up the court with um, with a backhand cross court uh, to Nadal's forehand, and then he went um, back down the line um, with a forehand, and he uh, and he broke. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like it on on, on that backhand side. Um... Before we move on to like maybe start talking later on in this in this episode about like what would have changed if they were um if they had the backhands that they have today with the <laughs> physical abilities that they had back then um like but like it, it's the the one thing I, f- I find interesting about um the net play that Federer was displaying was that like 
it was all backed up by his movement and just the fact that he was playing really well as a setup and build up the points so that he could reach the net and actually finish points, it, it, which kind of always showed the, the mentality that Federer has in which is just finishing points and honestly just rallying to no end. He looks to finish points from both the baseline and at the net, like whenever he sees the opportunity. So, and he, um, if he doesn't do that at, at times, like if not, if he kind of hesitates and just like gets stuck a little bit like inside of the baseline and Nadal just push, pushes a backhand or a forehand a little bit um, like deep down the base, uh, near the baseline and Federer just kind of, he, he just gets caught uh, backpedaling. And if he has to hit a backhand, it's, it's hundred percent sure that it's going to be a, like a, like a not good shot that Nadal is going to be able to run around and like hit a winner from and just dominate the point. So like for for him, it definitely makes more sense to um, try to keep advanced instead of like re, um, getting back to the, the the baseline and behind the baseline to start rallying again. And um, one, one note that I find is like um, was better on Nadal's side of the the net, like in the on his backhand, is that he was able to create better angles and be a little bit more solid with it, so that he he was actually able to move Federer from side to side with both his wings, where Federer whereas Federer had to kind of resort to his back forehand and like run around his forehand to create angles, even inside out. So um, I think this was a little bit of a problem for Federer, like uh, in the in the match overall, and maybe if. If Nadal had a better backhand even back then, I feel like this match could have ended like even in, in four sets instead of five. Um, maybe Nadal would have been able to take the first actually and take a, just go for a, a three sets to love. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that's possible. I think if Nadal were in the mood where he sort of, where he had the backhand he has now, and let's say in this hypothetical scenario, he were like cranking all of them like he did in the Roland Garros final uh, last year. I think it'd be extremely tough on Federer because I think mm-hmm. not only would he have to hit a lot of backhands, but he'd have to hit forehands on the run if, because Nadal would be hitting hard cross-court backhands. And so he'd be under a little bit of pressure in that pattern as well. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Nadal's backhand on the passing shot, it was great at creating angles. And you could see a little bit of that in the baseline rallies as well, I think. And it was definitely more adept at doing that than Federer's. Federer hit one really, really great angle on the backhand. It was... um. He was up 6-5, and Nadal was serving at 40-30 in the first set. And Federer hit a really good backhand angle that pulled Nadal out of position, but that was not the norm with what his backhands did. Yeah. Um, it's It produced the occasional sort of like beautiful shot in a rally, but it wasn't, you couldn't rely on him hitting that kind of shot. And even though we said Federer's backhand held up pretty well for the most part, like you said, um, if he dropped one short or if he got pushed back, you knew Nadal could run around it and finish with an inside-out forehand, which even though Nadal's cross-court forehand is his bread and butter, I think inside-out is a more reliable way for him to finish points. And so even though Federer was making a lot of cross-court backhands, and maybe not as many errors as he might usually, uh, he didn't want to rely on that to win him the match. He still couldn't really finish points off his backhand, and so he needed to get out of rallies at some point. Because there were times when sooner or later, if you have to hit like 15 backhands, um, you're going to miss one of them, especially if you're hitting one-handers up around your neck. And so I think... um, so I think that's one of the reasons he came to net so often and it worked well for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about the, the fifth set? Like, what do you, what do you think about it? In the extended highlights, we have the full, the full uh, fullness of the tiebreak. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I have most of my comments are directed towards the match points and the tiebreaker. So I don't know what you have to say before then. 
Yeah, I mean, I can um, I can give a couple of my thoughts until we get to that point, and then like, uh, and then go for it on the match points because that was yeah. the most important part of the match. So um, it was interesting because I think it won two in the fifth set with Nadal serving. Uh, Federer breaks. I think Nadal had had a game point, but Federer won that point and then got to add out. And I think Nadal goes just long with a backhand, and Federer gives a huge scream of uh, Ale, and so he's up three one, and then he. He consolidates, and in the process, he saves either one or two break points. I'm going to check now. Um, yeah, he saves two break points, and one of them was with an ace. So he's just broken for 3-1, and then he's sort of survived Nadal's effort to break back. And now he leads 4-1. And at this point, if you go back to the end of the third set, he's won 10 out of the last 13 games. He's got a three-game lead in the fifth set, and he's playing really, really good tennis. And so I feel like at this point, if you had seen it live, the match might have looked over. Because again, um, the one time they had played a fifth set before this, Federer won it really comfortably 6-1. And so it looks like this one might have been headed the same way. But Nadal sort of righted the ship with a hold to love to get to um, 2-4. And then he broke back in the next game. And um, and then it's in the 3-4 game that I think we get the point of the match. It was at, I think, 15-all in that point, in that game. They play a 24-shot rally. And it ends when, so Federer comes to net, Nadal tries to lob him, and Federer jumps up for a backhand smash, sort of hammers it at Nadal's feet. Nadal has to hit a forehand pickup, and so now they're both at net, and Federer's lining up a forehand, and somehow he manages to squeeze it past Nadal down the line. He gets the perfect shape on this ball. It's just this wonderful forehand that curves oh, right yeah. into the corner. And um, and he doesn't do his uh, typical fist pump. He does sort of like a fist raise uh, up to his shoulder. Um, and, I, and I think that was the point of the match and that got him to a good position at a 15 30 with a four, three lead. But then, um, Nadal forces a couple errors and, and even though the game goes to deuce, um, Federer doesn't have a break point and to add in Nadal, uh, cleanly passes him at net with a forehand cross court. And then, um, then I think after that, it's sort of uneventful until we get to, um, the five, six game. And just before you talk about the match points, I think um, on the 15, 30 point, it's interesting because Nadal is doing his thing. He's attacking Federer's backhand corner with his forehand, but Federer's not buckling. He's making backhands. Some of them are pretty deep. And this is a 16 shot rally. And eventually Nadal actually loses patience and he goes for a forehand down the line and he misses it really wildly. Yeah. I think it's yeah. way long and it's also a little wide. And that sets up Federer with two match points at fifteen forty. So take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, I tr- truly believe that Federer should have won that one of those two match points. Like it's not anything special that Nadal did. Um, obviously, Nadal being Nadal, like he did his job and kept the ball in and kept his game straight. He didn't go. He didn't double fall. Didn't go for too much on his ser- for, for serves. Um, you know, he did. Um, the basics really, really well as he does, but Federer pulled the trigger way too early on the first match point. Um, yeah. Just kind of like run, ran around his backhand and just kind of, kind of probably thought like, this is it. I'm just going to hit a super winner. Um, the classic run around the backhand, go down the line. That's it. Like it didn't work. He missed it like very much long. Mm-hmm. And, and on the second match the point as well, uh, the first sorry? match point, like the forehand wouldn't have been a winner. I think it went like almost down the middle, but it was yeah, something like away. this. It was a, it was a really terribly hit shot? Um, 
And the the second match point, he was running around, running on the forehand um, to try to hit a forehand down the line. This time off of, off to Nadal's um, forehand, and he just misses it wide. Again, just pulls the trigger too early. Just thought he had the time, but he was not in place. He was not in position. He was not in balance. Everything was wrong about that shot, mm-hmm. and he just missed it. And he wasn't even close. And there you go to Deuce and. Um, Maybe he he could have prolonged the rally a little bit longer. Maybe he maybe he should have been able to like you know be a little bit more patient. Not even just maybe maybe that was actually the right moment to hit a winner. But he wasn't patient as patient enough in in his movement to the ball at least, mm-hmm. so that he didn't have any margin. He didn't have any anything. It was it was almost like a just hit the ball type of situation, and the ball just didn't collaborate with him. So probably he's probably. Against Nadal, probably his two worst forehand misses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it could be. That that second one, I think, was the one, because the first one, like you said, was a pretty terribly hit shot that I don't even think would have ended the point if it had gone in. But on the second one, he actually had opened up the court a little bit. And this forehand's down the line. If he had like hit it right in the corner, I think it could have been a winner. But like yeah. you said, the execution was not there. It hit the half of the alley that was farther away from the singles court. So it missed by several feet. And um, and I think you're right. Like maybe that was the moment, but he didn't set up for it properly. I think where he might have gotten a little bit. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Tight. And, um, and yeah. Yeah. So that, that was it. Like, I feel like, um, and then from there on, Nadal did super well when the game, wins the game and brings it into a, another tiebreaker. And, um, Federer started off really well, like on that tiebreaker. He just he did, hit like yeah. super good, like forehands. He just did what he should have done in the match points, and just won an incredible point with like two incredible forehands that Nadal just had no chance of winning. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting because on the one-all point where Nadal is serving, this is a four-shot rally, and Nadal hits a backhand cross court. And Federer gets a look at a forehand and he hits the exact forehand he was trying to hit on the second match point. He hits it down the line, but this yeah. he hits perfectly. It goes right into the corner. It's a winner yeah. and it all can't get there. It's just a beautiful shot. It was so precise, just totally smears the line. And so that was the first mini break. And then and then he hits another forehand winner on the next point. That makes it 3-1. And then... Um, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Um he hits a, a backhand volley cross court that makes it 3-1. And then Nadal passes him to get the mini break back. But after that, Federer gets another forehand winner. It's uh, it's inside out. It's like deep right to the corner. And you just feel like his forehand is reaching this really nice vein of form in the tie break. So that puts him up 4-2 at the change events. Yeah. And I think he made another error on the forehand. Maybe one or two errors on the forehand. Is it is it on this tiebreaker that he misses in the net? He just has like a... He could have hit an attacking shot and just hits it right into the net, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so um, it goes to that five gave me, three. Yeah, so. that, even though Wimbledon 2008 ha- happened l- two years later, mm-hmm. it kind of gave me the, the match point feel on the Nadal match point. 
Oh, yeah, just yeah. misses into, right into the net. It was almost the exact same thing. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, the yeah. way Tennis Abstract describes this um, this 5-3 point is um, Federer hits a second serve wide, Nadal hits a shallow backhand return down the middle, and Federer hits a forehand down the middle into the net. Um, and this was a horrible miss because he wasn't trying to do anything with the shot. And he and was he, he was off balance too. You could see it was his, his arm was too close to his to his body at that point. So not not yeah. not even close to a to a classic Federer forehand. No, not at all. Um, yeah, and so the shot smacks the top of the net, and there goes his mini break. And um, and then at four or five, they um they have a fifteen shot rally. And Federer, and it ends when Federer uh, badly misses a cross court forehand, um, both wide and long, uh, according to tennis abstract. And um, and so that makes it five all. And um, and so at this point he's had three one, four two, and five three in the tiebreak, and he's had two match points. And um, and now it's five all. And Nadal hits a first serve that's down the middle, and Federer it's Federer's backhand, uh, as it almost always is. And I don't think it was a great serve, but Federer hits his return long. And um, and so that gives Nadal a match point on Federer's serve. And um, do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, I think that point should have been replayed. <laughs> oh, somebody really? literally screamed out in the middle of the point. And Federer, by, by, not by result of that, but like it seemed like Federer hesitated a little, a little bit and dropped the forehand short. Mm-hmm. And I think that that point should have stopped, should have stopped right then and replayed it and i i actually don't remember the screen but that's that's another what if like crowds can get so crazy on match yeah. points and it's and it's a shame that happened because i think you're right and there was a little bit of hesitation like federer was ahead early in the rally i think and then nadal hit a really deep forehand and yeah. i think federer might have thought it was out because he like backs up a little bit um but yeah that that's the one if you if you if you see the highlights somebody really yells really loudly out <laughs> oh okay so, and, so maybe yeah. he thinks there was an out call that that he couldn't hear um yeah. or that would be possible but yeah that um he gets it back but his shot creates space for nadal to hit a forehand into the open court and he goes um hard inside out and uh Federer gets there but his forehand is way long and that's the match yeah that's it so yeah i feel like that that match point should have been replayed maybe he would have still lost that but i, I think that in in fair play i think um, the umpire should have just called a not up on that one or like a, a, a let cord because um, not not up but a let actually was for for a replay the point because it was it was it was such a convincing scream also that I was like wait was that out but it wasn't it was actually in and there goes the the point so I don't know hmm. I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that um, yeah. I think I think you could be right like to my knowledge umpires don't often. Uh, replay points because of screams in the middle of the match but i think um either way like that fan should not have done that and it's so unfortunate because i mean for the fans the excitement is obviously at its peak but for the players like they've been playing five hours but this point matters more than like any other point they played and so like you just have to be respectful and quiet yeah. during the rally and i think it's a shame that a scream potentially influenced the outcome of that point yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, people normally like umpires normally would like issue like the the classic please do not call like after the point is over. Right. Regardless <laughs> At that of point, what the happens. match has ended. But so. I don't know. I feel like just watching this, it's it's just like for me, um, it, it for me would have been a, a lot, like in my opinion. Like I know that some players during matches they go like, oh yeah, let, let's replay the point because this happened. But like 
I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Nadal should have done that because um it was a five setter, he wasn't match point up, like he was he was all nerves, of course. He like he really wanted to win. Like the last thing that he was thinking of was fair play. Like, I mean, not he was like, Oh yeah, I want to win this, but I want to win this right. You know what I mean? Right. He was not thinking that. So I, I wouldn't like it's totally understandable that Nadal wouldn't have done this. It, it is impossible that Nadal didn't even hear that that call mm-hmm. because he was just like so focused and so like locked in on that on that point and the next shot that he needed to to hit that I wouldn't I wouldn't put it on um, on his back that he should have uh, he should have showed fair play and actually like called the point back to Federer's uh, serve. I, I I think that he 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 did what most players would have done. Like I guess like in in that in that time and. It's just like raises for me the questions like maybe that point should have been replayed for for that reason, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's interesting. Like I like I said, I don't exactly remember how loud the scream is. I actually I pulled up the YouTube video. Do you mind if I watch the end of it really quick? We can yeah. cut this out if you want. Sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll be back in a second. Okay. Yeah, that that's definitely a bad scream. Um yeah. like I was um I was watching Federer's footwork and I don't think he thought it was out. Um I think like he's still split stepping and moving. But um but yeah, that's that's really awful from the fan, and I'm uh, I'm a little disappointed that that happened because um, because yeah, it's it's horrible to influence um, potentially influence the outcome of a point that way. And I think even if Federer uh, like always thought that the point was still alive, um, they sort of shouted it as he swung because the ball did hit really close to the baseline. So maybe if there hadn't been a scream, he would have been able to hit a better shot off of that, and then maybe Nadal wouldn't have had sort of a point ending shot uh right after that um but yeah that that's a shame um mm-hmm. and i i didn't remember that from the highlights somehow so yeah that's another interesting what if because i think if it had been replayed then federer would have in theory gotten another first serve right yeah he would but, have uh i don't think you can start a point like on the second serve right, <laughs> I think right. as soon as you restart which is something that i think is wrong <laughs> but it's fine mm-hmm. um um I feel like if you start a point in the second serve, you, you you have to replay. You start a point in the second serve. Like, I don't know. I think that's just me. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's yeah. a, a legitimate complaint. I think, um, yeah, th- there's some weird rule where it's like if a first serve um, is like, th- there's something where like if a first serve is challenged or like if a second serve, oh, right, right. It's like if you hit a second serve and it's, and it's called out, but you challenge and it's in, you get your first serve back. And I think that makes no sense at all because it was yeah. the second serve that got challenged. So um, maybe they think like the disruption and rhythm should like give you a first serve back. But I think that makes no sense because you've already missed your first serve at that point. Um, but yeah, like challenge rules can be weird with that. Yeah. Yeah. And if we move on to like maybe like a more uh, uh, whole scheme of things like in yeah. your career. Yeah. Isn't Sorry, I got like a bit like off that. topic there. It's fine. It's no problem. Like I started with that one as well. Um, so do you think that if Federer had actually won that match, and I think we've talked about this before, but I'm not sure if you were in that actual um, um, talk, but like uh, I'm pretty sure Vansh was, we talked about this with Vansh, but like if, if Federer had won that match, do you think this would have made a difference in their, in their rivalry at all and the outcome of some of their matches? Well, I think um, I think it definitely would have made a difference, if only because of the match itself. Because to date, Federer has not won a best of five on clay over and at all. So this would have changed that. Yeah. And I think um, I think that's quite a big accomplishment. Uh, Djokovic has only done it one time, and that was against a very 
a subpar Nadal. So, so this would have been a best of five win against something that was much, much closer to prime Nadal or peak Nadal on clay. And so I think that alone would have made a difference in their rivalry. The, the power dynamic on clay would have been less lopsided. But as to whether this would have changed anything at Roland Garros, I don't really think it would have. I think Federer might have gone into their Roland Garros match in 2006 with more confidence, but I still don't think he would have won. I think the conditions are too um, too favorable to Nadal, and Nadal is too good at executing um, his his tactics or just attacking Federer's backhand um, and sort of bombarding him with the high balls that I just don't see Federer winning three sets. I think we saw in 2007 Federer beat Nadal on clay at Hamburg and um, and he still ended up losing their French Open match in four. And even though this is a bit different, this is best of five. It was a long match. Uh, Federer had won one of his two match points. It would have been like four hours and 50 minutes at that point. That kind of win would give you a ton of confidence. And um, mm-hmm. But still, I think while it might have made things closer, I still don't think he would have gotten one of the French Open final. Yeah. Oh, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree with that mostly. The, the one thing that I, I am trying to like, um, you know, I'm trying to put it in my thought process with that is that 2006 was um, Federer's best season ever. Mm-hmm. And he was like really flying with confidence. And I feel like if he could have, uh, if he could have taken that match, he, he would have sort of, you know, proven to himself that he can beat the best of the best on any surface. Mm-hmm. And obviously Nadal was definitely the guy to beat on clay already. Um, even though he wasn't goat status or anything like that, like he was definitely the one guy that everybody was sort of chasing on clay and he was number two in the world. So it, it makes sense too on that, on that regard. So I feel like maybe Federer winning that match, he would have been able to like relax a bit and he would have been able to like approach his um, Roland Garros um, match with a little bit more of freedom and he if i'm if i'm not mistaken he did win the first set like pretty pretty convincingly it was a 6-1 or exactly and um Um, funny because that was actually something you brought up in the very first podcast we did together uh we were i think we were talking about nadal at the french open and you said something like um but that that first set he played against federer in 2006 like that wasn't even nadal man um and i just remember that so clearly for some reason (laughs) Yeah, it, yeah. Like Nadal's just like really subpar on that on that first set. But I, the one thing that I think the Rome final would have changed would have been how Federer would have approached the match after Nadal had clicked a bit better in his game. Yes. So like if if they were both like playing their best, I think Federer wouldn't have maybe panicked. I'm not sure if Federer panics any at all. Like I think he just kind of maybe doubts his shots like every once in a while, and that costs him like way too many opportunities and. If the rallies go long, I think he d- just doubts himself more and more and start like maybe not necessarily knowing where to go or what to do um, against Nadal most specifically. Like I think anybody else is, is more able to like think clearly, but Nadal for the longest time in their careers just kind of had the the mental edge over Federer as well. Um, of course, they, you have to be a great tennis player to do that, but I feel like Nadal also had a, a, a more mental um you know, burden over Federer's shoulders that he wasn't able, really able to shake off until 2017 Australian mm-hmm. Open. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I feel like that, that was really one of the things that I feel like Federer would have been able to draw on the Rome win um, mm-hmm. instead of being, you know, now two consecutive losses against Nadal on, on clay. Um, he would have been just um, 
lost lost in Monte Carlo, came back in Rome, won a bigger final, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm back in Roland Garros and he's number one. He's 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 been having the best season of his life. Um, and of course, like Federer did super well to, you know, get back on track and after that and like go back to Wimbledon, which is probably like his biggest um, saving grace of all time is the fact that Roland Garros is right before Wimbledon. So like he loses in Roland Garros. He's and like, he oh, yeah, right now, now I'm home. And this just like feels much better right off the bat. Like if if there was if there were more clay court tournaments, like after I think his confidence would have been far more shattered. Uh, so he wouldn't have been able to win Wimbledon as much. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that is possible. And I think you make um, a really good point about sort of this giving Federer confidence in the close moments, because I think a big part of why Nadal did so well in best of five against Federer was that when he got like a two sets to one lead, he would never, ever let it go. And I think a big thing for Federer, if he had won this, would have been the confidence that he had come back from two sets to one down, because in their French Open matches, uh, 2005 to 2007, they all kind of followed the same pattern. It was like um, they'd split the first two sets, and the third set would be close for a little bit, and then Nadal would sort of win an important point or get a crucial break, and then from there he would sort of run away with the match. And I think mm-hmm. if Federer had won, which this is by the way match, the same pattern of 2011, <laughs> uh, I think in that one Federer went down two sets and then he won the third. Oh yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. Um, Never mind what I said. No, 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 I'll get it. But yeah, I think if Federer had won this Rome match, then if he had gone down two sets to one, maybe he wouldn't have panicked as much and he would remember like, okay, like I can still win because I've done it before. But Mm -hmm. when in this Rome match, like he got very, very close, pretty much as close as you can get, but he didn't do it. And, um, And then when he went down two sets to one in the 2006 French Open final, uh, Nadal served for it at five, four, and he managed to break back Federer and it went to a tie break, but um, it wasn't a great tiebreak for me, either of them, but Nadal ended up winning that 7-4. And so I wonder if Federer had won that Rome match and that, and then their Roland Garros match followed the same pattern. Would Federer have had a little bit of extra confidence at the end of that fourth set and maybe found a way to pull that out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that, would, that would be only my only um, takeaway on that one is that a major what if too because suppose Federer still loses in Roland Garros maybe his confidence would still have been like drawn back to to, to you know to the ground by Nadal mm-hmm. and obviously Nadal wouldn't just stand still like after losing Rome he would have probably worked on a ways to to win back um, what he lost which is clay um, dominance um, and still he was he was still the defending champion in, in Roland Garros and whatever so I think you may or may not have made the difference. <laughs> That's essentially my biggest takeaway is that one of, it's one of those questions that like you can argue both ways and still be right, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think there are points on both sides here. And, um, and I, I quickly want to touch on a couple other things you said. I think like when you talk about Federer sort of having this huge rival on clay, I think that's another what if for if he wins this match. Like if he gets this Rome title even if he doesn't go on to win the French Open, that elevates his 2006 season even more. I think maybe it puts it closer in conversation with Djokovic's 2015. If Federer does get like a big Masters 1000 uh, against a really strong Nadal um, as part of the season, because I think if I'm not mistaken, like I'm not sure Federer got a clay title in 2006. And if he did, he didn't have to go through Nadal to get it. And so this would change that if he got this Rome title in a big way. And I I think another thing is... um, is that you talk about Nadal um, sort of winning these these really long matches. Like he had a, a similar Rome final in 2005 against Guillermo Coria, 
that he also won in a fifth set tiebreak. And I think that one was even longer. It was closer to five and a half hours. Yeah. And I think that these two matches really, really helped Nadal's early development on clay and in general, and are a big part of why he's he went on to become the king of clay. Because I think when when you're sort of able to play matches that are that long, these two matches were more draining than anything he's ever, than any single match he's ever had to play at Roland Garros. And so I think when he was playing those and winning those on top of Roland Garros, it was almost like he was getting the experience of playing two majors within sort of a week or two of each other. And I think physically and mentally being able to play matches like that over five hours that early in your career must have just put his confidence through the roof. Because I think when you're 18 or when you're 19 or 20 and you're beating the world number one or you're beating Korea in a fifth set tie break after five hours, um, it must make you feel like you can do anything. And I think Nadal rode that wave for a really long time. Yeah. And uh, and this isn't to say that his technical skills on clay weren't way better than everyone else's as well. I just think that being able to play these matches so early um, helped his confidence on top of everything else. Yeah. And one thing that uh, one uh, one last thing that I want to say about Nadal, and pro- particularly this match, I would say is that um, Nadal definitely covered a lot of the lack of uh, of some shots, especially on the backhand side, with the fact that he was so fast and he moved so well because yeah. his his backhand slice was not great. <laughs> no, it was, it was live. it got so much better in the years after that. Yeah. Is I, I remember a few shots, and I think one of the shots, even in the in the in the fourth set, that Nadal just kind of gave up on like actually top spinning uh, a backhand and just slices a backhand to Federer's uh, forehand. It just kind of floats it, very nice and easy, and Federer just mm-hmm. runs around and just rips a, an inside out forehand winner. And it, it was like, man, this Nadal does not have this license anymore. It's right. so much better. It's it's not even close <laughs> right now. Yeah, so, I yeah. I think there may have been a similar point in like the fifth set tiebreak or like late in the fifth set. Um like uh but yeah, like there was a point that basically followed the exact same pattern that you just mentioned where Nadal hits a backhand slice and Federer just runs around it and crushes a forehand winner and it's like what were you expecting to happen there, <laughs> Rafa? Yeah. You know, like um like it's Federer's forehand and you just hit a bad slice on clay. Um, so, so it is impressive that he has, um, made up for it. And it's a great point about how fast he was then, because this was the era of Nadal when he had the immortal legs and he could play matches like this and just run down every single ball. Like you still say that about him now, he runs down every single ball, but back then it was much closer to actually being true. He would Mm -hmm. give up on very few things, even in points he lost he would run down a lot of shots and extend them and extend them. And that was just tiring to play against. And I think um, it's another reason that Federer came into net a hundred times because it's, that's mentally tiring to have to hit so many amazing shots to finish a point. Yeah. And, um, and it's another reason that he was able to be dominant on clay and at all, even with these imperfections in his game, because offensively his backhand wasn't that good and he didn't really have a slice. And a lot of the time his serve was just a point starter um, and yet he was able to win all these clay tournaments. And a big part of that was down to the fact that he was just ridiculously fast. He had a ridiculous amount of stamina and he was willing to, um, to like suffer a lot to win these matches. So he was just incredibly hard to beat, even though technically there were probably more holes in his game than there, than there are now. Yeah. And, and suffer he did. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> so, yeah. And I guess, uh, do you have anything else to add on the uh, Rome 2006 Relived uh, um, Tennis and Bagels podcast? 
I, I like the plug of the episode title. Um, not anything big, I don't think, but I guess just um, this was easily the best match on clay that these two have played. And I think, um, I think overall, in terms of their rivalry, this match probably doesn't get enough credit for how good quality it was. I think aside the 2008 Wimbledon final, this was probably the best match they've played. As, um, as a fan of particular matches, I like the 2009 Australian Open final more because of how good the shot making was for the first four sets. But I think as a match um, in its entirety, this one was better. It, um, the quality was quite consistent. We got three tiebreak sets. Uh, match points were saved. Um, and it was just really exciting. And I'm realizing now that when we were talking about it, I was focused more on um, on the points and the, and the flip-flops and the drama that I sort of forgot to talk about how good the match was as a whole because this was um, this was peak Federer against um, against Nadal who um, who was at his physical best and that just made for a really really explosive exciting matchup. So I'm I'm glad that this match happened. It's always good for a rewatch to go back and see um, and and yeah again it's far and away yeah. the best match these two have had on the red flag. So. Yeah. So uh, just to to finish this one um, and not going way too long on this, but like uh, you you really like Australia, so you're, the best match of all time for you is it's not even a contest. It's 2009 Rafa Nadal versus uh, Fernando Verdasco semifinal. Of course. Oh, what is the second best match of all time? Is it also in Australia? So that's difficult. I think if we're looking at the men's side. I think for me, the second best match of all time is at Wimbledon. And I think it's either the 2008 Wimbledon final or the 2018 Wimbledon semi between not Kevin Anderson and John Isner, uh, <laughs> as much as some people might think that, but um, uh, between Djokovic and Nadal. I think that's another match that unfortunately doesn't get its due in part to the fact that it was played over two days, but that was a ridiculous match. It was unbelievably good. Uh, both players hit 73 winners, 42 on four servers. And um and yeah, like the 2009 Australian Open semi, the quality of that one was just really, really unfailing from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally thought you were going to say 2009 final. <laughs> Australian oh, really? Open. Yeah. yeah, I mean... Um, what, but you, what, you already said it, right? It's like for the first four sets, yes, and then yeah. I'll let down on the... Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's why I'm such a fan of it, that match, because I can just go and watch the first four sets. Um that like sorry to go on a quick tangent here but that match is so interesting i think because um like the first um three three sets were amazingly good and then in the fourth set you just have this game at two all that like went on and on and both of them are hitting winners and they're all these deuces and then eventually they play that point i i hope everyone knows what i'm talking about where um <laughs> they have this rally where like federer hits this insane slice uh, squash shot on the run and Nadal goes sprinting over and gets it back deep to his uh, his backhand. And then eventually Nadal hits like a slap forehands down the line um, for a winner. And that was both where that match peaked and that rivalry peaked. Because since the 2009 Australian Open and since that very point in the match, I think that Federer and Nadal have not been able to reproduce that level of tennis at the same time on um, when they're playing. And so I think that's just like a very cool moment to pinpoint because... Um, I think that was when like everything about their rivalry, um, like their best level of tennis just culminated in that one point right there. And mm-hmm. after you could see the level very visibly drop off and it hasn't been back since. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. But yeah, like I feel like this sets the tone for the at least two two episode series of Roger Federer on Clay. 
Right. Um, we started yeah. off with a not so good uh, moment for him. Like obviously, he he will probably remember this fondly because Federer seems to just love whatever moments in his life in tennis. Yeah. Um, but he would love way more the next episode, which um, we will have lunch for it. Um, hopefully, it will be all three here talking about it, and it will be um, Federer's 2009 Roland Garros run, yes. um, where he won his first and only Roland Garros title tied Pete Sampras's 14 Grand Slam record and completed the career Grand Slam all in one. Um, so that's pretty, so that's pretty interesting. Um, and we get excited for this one, but that's a good prelude for it. Even though yeah. it took Federer another three years for him to, to, to actually accomplish this feat after 2006 Rome. So, yeah. Yeah. I like how you tied that into something we were doing in the future. I was thinking like at the end of this, I was like, should we try to sort of like relate this to Rome that's like going on right now? But I was like, I don't really know how, because it seems very disconnected. So that was a very good way to wrap up. Um, I think we're all excited for the 2009 Federer episode. Um, like Andre said, it it was huge for him. I think that was the moment when he surpassed Pete Sampras, even though um, he tied the major count. I think that solidly made him a better player if he wasn't already. And and yeah, I'm, I hope all three of us are there for that for it because it'll be a really great way to honor uh, Federer's return to play. Yeah, and uh, hopefully everybody gets super excited about that one too. So uh, yeah, I'll see you guys later. And thanks for listening to this uh, midweek podcast with uh, Andre and Owen. And um, surely Vansh would have been, uh, you know, he, he's probably a little upset that we meant, we didn't mention a couple stats that he probably knows by heart But at this point. But yeah, right, stay tuned yeah. for uh, our uh, <laughs> Twitter accounts. Um, I am at Rollenberg Andre. Tennis Nation is Owen. Let me just rephrase that. Owen is at Tennis Nation. Vansh is, all, is Vansh at Vansh BJK. And we are at Tennis and Bagels on Twitter. Just chat with us. We all, we're there all the time. Yeah. And uh, and feel free to like tweet the podcast account to ask a question if you're ever curious about something, by the way. We'll, we'll do like answering question podcasts occasionally, but like happy to tweet back at any time as well. So yeah, for sure. All right, man. See you. Good to yeah, talk. Thanks. This was fun. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.